Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 518 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. Well, this is my last episode to you before Christmas, so I want to wish you and your family a wonderful time over the holidays. I know that most people will be having some kind of break and I hope you get a chance to relax and binge on Netflix or Stan or Disney Plus or Apple or whatever it is that you subscribe to. I hope you get get to write a chunk of that novel that you've been meaning to get to or plough through a trove of magazines and newspapers and books so that you can catch up with some reading. Over here, I'll certainly be trying to get to the beach and I have, of course, a to-be-read pile that is a mile high. Now, this week, I want to give a bit of a shout out to Shulan Moore. She is a doctor, as in a GP, uh, but she's also a graduate of several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. And I just wanted to let you know that she started her training to become a GP and she had two goals to complete her GP fellowship, and to write a novel for National Novel Writing Month. That's NaNoWriMo. This was some years ago. It might seem like an unusual combination, but Shulan was determined to follow her passion for writing alongside her medical career, like both at the same time. One of the things she was drawn to was writing picture books at the Australian Writers' Centre. And I'm so thrilled and delighted to announce that Next year, she'll be publishing not one, but two picture books in 2023. Now, Shulan recently said to us, the courses have directly led me to being published because I would have taken a lot longer to glean the ins and outs of the craft and industry of picture book making if I had to start from scratch with online research. Next year is going to be a big year for me with Nothing Alike, that's the name of uh, one of the books, published by Bright Light and The Build Up, published by Windy Hollow, both coming out within a few months of each other. Now, I did a happy dance when I heard this news, and I know that this is just the start for Shulan. You can read her full story on our blog at writercentre.com.au slash blog. But how's this for totally weird? I find out this news, right, about Shulan, and then, unrelated to this, because I'm into grand designs. Yes, I watch the UK, Australian and New Zealand versions. My partner and I were catching up on some old episodes of the Australian version that we'd missed and we turned one on and it was Shulan and the house she built with her electrician husband, which she describes as a frugal house on a small footprint and mainly made from chipboard. So not only a doctor, but also a picture book author of multiple picture books now, and also an advocate of tiny living. There you go. Now, Shulan has done many courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, including writing picture books, but she also did freelance writing stage one. And I have a tip that that is especially useful for freelance writers or anyone who needs to arrange a time to meet up or interview people, you know, or chat to them or book, book in time to chat to them on Zoom or whatever. It's an app called DotCal, and it's designed to make it super easy for you to find a time when you're both free so you can book an appointment. 
Basically, instead of sending back and forth dozens of emails, you just put your availability into .cal and then other people can book in a time with you. And of course, you can just sync it with your calendar, whether that's a Google Calendar or iCal or whatever, and it'll automatically show your availability and book appointments directly into your calendar. Now, I haven't taken this one for a proper test drive yet, so I don't know how it compares to other scheduling apps. But if you're still sending three or four emails to try to line up interviews for a freelance story or a profile piece or a nonfiction project, then you definitely need to check this app out. If you do find it useful, let me know. And another appointment booking app you can try is Calendly. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y, Calendly. But I'll put, I'll put the links for both .cal and Calendly in the show notes. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have a great book for you this week. I have three copies of What Writers Read by Pandora Sykes to give away. Now we're closing in on the final days of 2022, so this week's giveaway seems a bit fitting. It's the collection What Writers Read with 35 writers sharing their favourite book and some words about why it's their favourite. I always find these sorts of compilations or lists interesting. It's edited by Pandora Sykes. Time and again, writers are asked the same questions about their favourite books. What are they? What's the book you wish you had written? What's the book that's changed your life? In What Writers Read, Pandora Sykes, herself a voracious, omnivorous reader, collects short essays from best-selling and beloved writers to discover the books they hold most dearly because they made them who they are. I think it's a love letter to reading and I think you'll enjoy this book. I have it on my to-be-read pile, but I know it's going to be awesome because you can gain so much insight from what writers say they read and how it's impact, how that book has impacted them. So I have three copies to give away. So get in on it, writercenter.com.au slash win. Just go to that URL and follow the instructions if you want your chance to win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 2nd of January. And if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic giveaway there for you to win. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are because the word of the week is defalcation. That's defalcation. Now, I know what you're thinking. It sounds like defecation, but actually, it's a legal term. It's a noun meaning the misappropriation of money and so on held by a trustee or a professional who is in charge of handling money or other resources. So if you're writing a crime thriller, say, about a shady bank manager or a high-level official who steals money, that character is committing defalcation. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd love to create your own picture book, a popular five-week course in writing picture books will show you how. In less than a few hours a week, you'll discover what you need to know about point of view in a picture book, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrators, publishing options and much more. 
Complete it online for ultimate convenience and receive personalised tutor feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash picturebooks. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Joe Riccioni is author of The Branded. She is a novelist and short story writer. The Branded is Joe's second novel. Her first novel, The Italians at Cleats Corner Store, was published in Australia and the UK and won multiple awards. She studied English at Leeds University in the UK and has a master's in medieval literature. She's also worked as a teacher, a corporate trainer, and a bookseller, among many other things. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. Oh, thanks for having me, Val. I'm so excited to be talking to you about The Branded. I'm seeing this everywhere. I'm hearing so many people talk about it. Even though it's for young adults, I'm hearing not only young adults, but adults who are reading it, absolutely loving it. I'm seeing it in bookshops. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be huge. So tell the people who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, what is The Branded about? Okay. Uh, well, I should be practised at this, really, because I just came from um, Adelaide Supernova uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, we had to practice. I had to practice my one-line pitch. So, basically, the branded is if you'd imagine Margaret Atwood's *The Handmaid's Tale* meeting *Mad Max* set in a Game of Thrones world. So, <laughs> I love that description. <laughs> If you want a bit more information, basically, my world is uh, uh, has been decimated by a virus about a, a century earlier, and survivors are divided into the majority who have the scars of this virus, which manifest as as markings on their skin skin called brands, and then a small minority of people who are pure skinned who are immune to disease and a lot bigger and stronger. And the women in this um, society are of, who are pure skinned are obviously prized as breeders. And my two, my twin sisters, Osha and Nara, um, are being uh, kept in a, a citadel in the north of the continent where they are indulged and um, they have, you know, surrounded by luxury. But it, it comes at a price. They are kept effectively incarcerated and used as, as breeding machines for the ruling elite. Um, so my book takes place when they decide they're going to turn back to try and escape and go back to the woods where they grew up um, because they're orphans, um, because they don't like the future that, that is in store for them. And on the way, they uh, to be able to do this, they befriend a branded servant who is from the south of the country, who's quite untrustworthy. They don't really know whether they can really... Um, trust what he has to say but he seems to know an awful lot about them uh and they're not quite sure why anyway when they go on the run with him they become they get ambushed by wasteland traders and they end up on a long adventure south where they dis make lots of discoveries about themselves about inherent powers that they're starting to feel uh that they have and and also about um the world the world that they thought they knew which uh turns out not to be true now, I want to talk uh, more about the world and how you built it and all of the things that go in it, because there is so much you need to think of, not only terminology, but geography, um, different classes, different groups and all of that. But before we get into that, this is your second novel. 
And your first novel was an adult uh, literary fiction um, novel, The Italians at Cleats Corner, and it was uh, it, it won awards. It was highly regarded, and this is such a different style and tone and audience kind of book. Why the departure? Um, okay, well, I think that first novel. Everybody has that first novel in them where they know it's a it's the it's the book that led them to writing and. Uh, the Italians was my book. It was very, uh, it was loosely based on my family history. So I felt a uh, an urgency to write it because I wanted to do due diligence to my family history. Um, but my background actually was medieval literature. I studied med- a master's in medieval literature at university. And um, I um, always knew that I wanted to, to work in that field really. But um, I guess when I wrote this literary novel, it did quite well. I had an editor waiting for a second novel. And um, I had this expectation. I won residencies to go on um, um, on my, you know, to go and write the second novel. And I had this kind of expectation that I was this now this literary writer. I also wrote short stories that did very well and, and won quite a lot of accolades. So I had this kind of expectation that I was this literary writer. But what happened when I went on residency with my second novel was that it it died underneath me, basically. I got to about 50,000 words and I realised it was making me really, really unhappy. I'd chosen a subject that was quite close to home. That was something that had happened to me. And I think it was just too close for comfort. And I spoke to my writers group, who are this amazing bunch of women who I've been meeting for like 15 years. And they said, Joe, just go away and write something that makes you happy because this book is not making you happy. And actually we're not enjoying reading it that much either. So I went, okay then. <laughs> so I went away and I had I had already been sort of playing with this, this idea that I wanted to, um, I mean, I love The Handmaid's Tale. When I studied it at university, it had only been out for about five or six years. And uh, I did a feminist perspectives and on literature course. And I remember thinking, Oh, this is this is such a great novel, and I think it would be really great if it was written for younger readers. You know, like because then years later, I had my daughter; she was a teenager, and I started reading a lot of the YA um, fantasy that she was reading. And um, you know, I remember thinking this this Handmaid's Tale thing would be a great, or the themes of the Handmaid's Tale would be great for a YA audience because a lot of girls are you know getting their periods for the first time they're they're wondering about who they are as women you know is motherhood essential you know what what defines us as women and my daughter was struggling with that in particular you know she's quite a bright girl and she remember her going through a lot of the feelings I had when I was that age and yeah so anyway that's a long way of saying that I had these ideas bubbling around I wasn't necessarily a literary fiction writer but I'd kind of fallen into this groove which didn't eventually sit right with me. And um, I went away and had a go at writing this YA uh, well, fantasy book, and it just poured out of me. I loved it, had great glass writing it, um, which I think comes across in the writing because it's yeah. pasty and um, it's full of fun. And, um, yeah, and that's what I wanted. It freed me basically as a writer. That's wonderful that your writers group gave you that encouragement and permission almost Mm. to go and write something that you love. Now, when even though you had this idea in your head from years ago about, you know, this this kind of world or this kind of book or those kinds of themes, did you know immediately, okay, the thing I'm going to love writing is that 
Or did you try a few things before you realised that was definitely the thing that was going to pour out of you? Um, no, I didn't. I'm not a big explorer and I'm not a big starter. I'm a, even in the Myers-Briggs world of personality types, I'm a completer finisher. I'm a kind of like, I'm going to milk this baby for all it's worth. And if it doesn't work, then so be it. But yeah, so I kind of started on that story and I ended with that story. And, um, but I, I think, I guess I do do quite a lot of thinking before, I actually put any pen to paper or, you know, fingertips to keyboard. Um, I, I think about it a lot. I'm mulling it over. And like a lot of writers, I start with um, a kind of an image that doesn't go away, an image that stuck with me. And it was these girls in the snow in a wagon being ferried against their will, all shoved together in this wagon uh, racing across the snow. And that image was my very first image that visited me for this book. And it's the one I based the whole book around. That is such a powerful image Mm. and such a, there's so many layers to that image. That's fantastic. Mm. Do you know where the image came from? (laughs) No, I'm not sure whether I dreamt it or whether I just imagined it, daydreamed it, you know, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay. I think the Mad Max. I loved watching Mad Max, and I loved, I love snowy, you know, Northern Hemisphere type settings. The Game of Thrones, you know, the Win- uh, Winterfell type setting. So maybe it was just the convergence of lots of different influences. So once you decided, okay, I'm going to write this, and you say that it poured out of you. What did that period of time look like? Were you writing full time? Were you writing all day? Were you writing in bits and pieces? What? How long was that period and what part of your day or week did you dedicate to writing? Yeah, so I've always been a part-time worker. So I worked in a bookshop for 10 years and then in the last uh, two years I've been a, a sex educator. Um, but it's always a bit been different. part-time. Yeah, it's slightly <laughs> different. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's always been part-time. I mean, I do a lot of other jobs as well, like teaching and, um, you know, like lecturing and, you know, uh, interviewing and, and I just want to clarify to listeners that when Joe's referring to her being a sex educator, you are educating young people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in schools as a visiting um, mm-hmm. expert, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I've always been, and I, there has been a very small period in my life when I had small children where I could, and they were in kindy, I could write full time, and I found it was nowhere near as productive as I thought it was going to be. I actually probably did less than, than I do now working a part-time job. But it, I still think that, you know, I'm always absolutely in awe of these people who work full-time and then yeah. write. write so what on. did your day look like then? You, know, you say that you work part-time, but you needed to obviously write. Uh, you were writing this novel. How many hours a day or week or whatever yeah, so were I'd you dedicating have, to it? I'd have between two and three days depending on my week I didn't have fixed days that I worked so some days I'd have some weeks I'd have two days where I could dedicate to writing and other other times I'd have three days but regardless of that I'm a 5am writer and I I know you know I met Maria Lewis recently and she said oh my god there's no way I'm getting up for love nor money at 5am for anyone but um I'm like yeah no I have to because it's my clearest time um that liminal space. I get up straight away. All I do is get a cup of tea and then I go straight to the computer. And I do the Hemingway thing where I leave my paragraph halfway through, so a sentence halfway, 
so that I can pick it up straight away. I'm not staring at a blank But screen. you're a completer. You're a completer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, no, that's up until I get to the, to, the, to the end of the book, yeah. But I do, when I'm drafting raw material, I won't, I try to leave it half undone at the end so that I know I can pick it up quickly the next morning. I don't like, um, I, I mean, I've done um, a course with Sue Wolf before where she does that stream of consciousness writing where you sort of get into your groove through just writing words. I can't write, I can't do it. I have to know, I have to be working in the book straight away. I don't want to, I mean, I, I think I do do the warm up, but I'm doing the warm up in the book. Um, so how many hours do you write for from at, from 5 a.m.? Um, I will write, and uh, now my kids are, you know, old enough to look after themselves. Um, I will write from 5 until whenever I need to start work, and often I start work at 9.30. So I'll write, I'll write from 5 until 8.30, say. And then or on days when i am got a cold day free, I'll write from 5 until I'll have breakfast. I might stop at 9.30 and have breakfast then. So I do those hours which is my most productive for raw material then I'll have breakfast I'll go and do some exercise walk the dog and then I'll come back and do some more but you know on my days when I'm writing I can I can do eight hours easily and I know a lot of people can't they say four hours for me is enough but I'm a kind of intense writer I'll write intensely but then I'll have periods where uh, I'm not writing at all Mm -mm. so now Let's talk about the world um, that uh, that these girls are in. There's so much to it, as I mentioned. Apart from geography, there's the different types of people. There's the there's obviously different characters, but there's also terminology. You know, mm-hmm. words that um, you've de- determined that you've made up um, that refer to certain things. To what extent do you build the world either in your head or written down or whatever at the start before you start writing or are you building it as you are writing? And if so, doesn't that end up with some bits of confusion and inconsistency along the way? Yeah, I mean, some of it's there before you start. Like some of it you know that you're in a kind of medieval world, so you have an idea of the way they're going to speak. And you have an idea roughly of their world order or worldview. You know, are they going to be religious? Are they going to, you know, think the world is square? (laughs) You know, are they going to, you know, are they going to have what kind of role are women going to have in this society? You know, what are the rules around? So you kind of set parameters, but they do develop as you go along because you come across plot points and you go, well, how would they react? Okay, well, I'm going to make it so that there's this rule that, um, you know, women are not allowed to go outside the boundary of the citadel without a, a warder accompanying accompanying them, which is like a guard. Um, you know, so I'm going to have that rule, and then the rules sort of develop and become a lot more advanced. As far as the language, special words go. Um, the, the key to this, to it with fantasy, is to not bombard the reader with too many unusual words to begin with, because it sw- it turns them off. They they can't keep track. And editors are very good at picking you up on this. Actually, they don't like it if you use too many weird terminology or world specific terminology. But you know, it's a bit like when you drop a foreign language word into a, a literary fiction novel. You know, it's fine as that the that the right the reader doesn't know what that word exactly means if they can tell within the context of the paragraph roughly what it means. 
and you're not doing it too often. So I kind of think that's a similar rule with fantasy world. They don't have to know exactly. You don't have to go, you know, um, oh, well, these more women, more women who are pure skinned, who can have babies. You don't need to explain it straight away. Mm, mm. You can just let the explanation come later on uh, in the context of, of the of the story. So there's a bit of a skill to that. And sometimes you have to go back and edit that to make it a little bit flow a bit better. Um but yeah, the fun making up the words is the fun part. Right? <laughs> yes. So this book pours this novel, this whole story pours out of you. And you obviously must have thought this is definitely the book I was supposed to write. What yeah. happened then? Because you weren't contracted to write this book. You were doing it to free your soul in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the first time I'd uh, not had an editor waiting for a book because with my first novel, I got signed when I only had 30,000 words. So that's quite unusual for writers. They, you know, most most people's first novel, they have that luxury of just doing it on their own time span, uh, writing it exactly the way they want to write it before they put it on submission and then they have to start making editorial changes and whatever. I didn't have that. I had an editor already reading parts of it as I went along and influencing it. It was kind of a bit like having a mentorship with an editor as I wrote that novel. Um, but with this novel, because I knew my publisher didn't accept um, fantasy, I knew they weren't going to take it. So I knew I was back to square one, which, you know, does take a bit of guts, actually, to just flip the bird at the whole publishing industry <laughs> and go, well, OK, I've written a literary fiction novel and now I'm just going to just start again with a different thing. <laughs> um, so but I did. Effectively, that's what I had to do. And so I went along to a launch of um, Jay Chris, one of Jay Kristoff's novels. And I met Garth Nix, who was interviewing Jay. And while Jay was sort of signing copies of his book and, and the audience were busy, um, Garth was sitting there doing nothing. And I, and I sort of, me being me, I just went up to him and started having a chat and said, you know, can I pick your brains? Because I knew um, Garth had been a, um, a publicist in his day as well as a, an agent, I think, as well. So I said, look, what should I do? I've changed genres and I've got this fantasy manuscript. And what would be your advice? Should I go for an agent? Because I've never had an agent. And he goes, yeah, definitely go for an agent and try for the US first. So I did. And I sent it out to about 10 agents in the US. And I got two full manuscript requests. But they took forever. I mean, I'm talking like eight months, nine months before they even got back to me. And in that, that time frame, I got impatient, like a lot of writers do. And I'd met my, with my first novel, Scribe had given it to an agent uh, called Catherine Drayton, who was a specialist in selling foreign rights to try and sell the rights to the US and the uh, and, and Europe. And I'd met Catherine and um, I thought, I'm just going to send it to Catherine, see what she says and see whether she likes it or not. And she took it on and she she said, I'm just going to send it to my assistant in the US to see what she says, because I'm not really convinced. And then she sent it to her assistant. And luckily, her assistant, Claire Friedman, said, yeah, definitely take this one. So <laughs> I was so grateful that she had backup <laughs> telling her to take it. But then the moment they took it, I was working with uh, an agent who was very editorially hands on. And she said, look, it's too Handmaid's Tale. I don't think I can sell it in its current form. I want you to change the fertility theme to a virus theme. Now, this is before COVID, right? So I then went away. She said, how long do you think you can? it will take you to do it? And I said, I'll need six months because I'm working. And, you know, so I went away. And in that six months, I rewrote the whole manuscript and COVID hit. 
Oh my god! Oh my god! No, I want to read a virus manuscript. But luckily, I hadn't made it about a virus. I'd made it about the fallout of a society getting over a virus. So it was like, what happens to society that has been segregated by, you know, those who have been exposed to the virus and those that haven't. So it wasn't really, it wasn't really a pandemic book. It was, yes. it was, it was about just a tenuous link to viruses. And really the, the fertility theme is still very, very strong. Yes. And weirdly enough, when Catherine finally sold the manuscript to Pantera, that was what they loved about it. <laughs> back and put it all back in again. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so you took the six months to tweak it. Mm-hmm. And then is that when Catherine sold it to Pantera? Yeah, it went on, it went on submission to the U S she tried the U S mm-hmm. but, but it was just a hard market to crack. She's still trying now to sell mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. rights to the US. And, of course, what I didn't understand about rights, which everybody in all my family are in the UK, and they're saying, when are we going to get your book? We can't buy your book here. And I said, yeah, well, Catherine's just told me that if you sell to your Australian New Zealand rights, the UK don't want your – you have to have huge sales in Australia and New Zealand before the UK will buy it because Australia and New Zealand represent 40% of the UK's market sh- share. So mm. unless you've got a high selling book, they're not going to take it unless you've already sold, uh, if you've already sold ANZ rights. So, yeah, we're in a bit of a con- uh, catch me too now. But, um, you know, I trust my my agent. She's she's an expert in the field. She knows what she's doing. So and if it's not this book, it might be another book. Who knows? I don't mm. know. But I've had fun writing it and book two is on the way. So, yes. Yeah, so talk to me about book two, because did you already know when you started this that there was going to be a book two. Yeah, yeah, I did. I wrote it as a duology, um, but I, I put it on spec with just the first book written. And my agent said, that's the other thing that she asked me to change. She said, I want you to make it one book because one book is easier to sell than than series books at the moment. And, and that's a bit, pretty much a consensus across the board that if you've got a standalone fantasy, it's going to be easier as a debut writer, not if you've an experienced writer, that's a different matter. But if you're a debut writer and you're writing fantasy or spec fic, uh, you're more likely to sell it if it's standalone to begin with, because they don't want to run the risk of you of launching a book and then it, it dies, it doesn't sell, and you've still got another book to get mm. out. Mm. So when I met Pantera and they we were doing the meeting about whether they were going to buy it or not. They said, this seems like it's going to be two books. I have to say, it doesn't feel like it fits in one book. And I said, well, that's because it was two books. And they said, okay, let's make it two books. So then I went and separated the manuscript again. Um, so there's a lot of work in changing these this manuscript several, several times. Um, but the beauty of that was that I had half the second book already written. <laughs> Because I'd shoved it into the into the first book, um, so yeah, it, it, it did help with with being able to write. And I'm just waiting for the edits back now, structural edits back on book two. Okay, so you've written book two. You're waiting on structural edits. Are are you already writing your next book after that? I I should be, but I'm not because <laughs> I'm getting my head around social media and promotions. <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned that you spent ten years as a working as a bookseller. Yeah, what did you learn from that that informed your writing? Oh, so many things, so many things. If you can be a bookseller and still be a writer, uh, you're 
you have to have guts to do it because, you know, I'd spend, I'd get so excited unpacking the new receiving boxes and putting on um, up all the new face outs for all the new edition, uh, new releases, you know, and a lot of my friends' books were in those, those um, new releases. And six weeks later, I'd be taking them down, packing them up, sending them back, you know, because they're, you know, pretty much uh, a novel has the lifespan of a pot of yogurt. <laughs> so so if they have if they're not selling by that stage you kind of like you're not going to be ordering anymore you know and mo- and a lot of them you'll only keep two and you'll send the rest of them back and so in your time a- sorry in your time did you what did you notice were the things that made people buy um word of mouth you know, the buzz of, of, of readers getting behind a book. And I think TikTok's a ex- classic example of old books suddenly become going off because TikTokers are getting behind certain authors, certain book series or whatever, and, and they're bringing them back to life again. And so, you know, we will get, we'd get a lot of people coming into the shop saying, I've read, my friends read this and said, I've got to read it. Um, we would do a lot of hand selling as well. There'd be favorites that booksellers would have. Uh, that we would hand sell a lot of, and we'd always keep copies. So if you can, what get do you mean on, by hand sell? Hand selling is you get someone coming in saying, "Look, I'm looking for a book. I love books set in Italy," uh, and you'll go, "I've got the exact book for you," and it'll be the one that you sell for people who love European romances or something like that. Or you'll get a met, you'll get a fantasy uh, uh, reader coming in and saying, "You know, well, I've read everything. Can you give me something new?" And I'll say, "Yep, yeah, got the exact book for you." Um, and it will be one you keep on on you personally. Make sure you always have stock of, so that you can satisfy that reader's need. Um, and if if writers can get a bookseller on side like that, it can make a huge difference to your sales. Huge difference. Mm. Um, yeah. So you not only have worked in a bookstore, you've also been a high school teacher. Yeah, years so, ago. <laughs> yes. And um, so what do you enjoy about teaching young people? Because one of the things that you're doing for the Australian Writers' Centre in 2023 is you are running our Teenage Creative Writers Program, which yep. is so exciting because I just, you know, I just know that your passion is going to be infused into these young writers. What do you enjoy about, well, teaching writing, let's mm. be specific, to young people? Yeah, I, I mean, I just love the potential of young people and the fact that, you know, um, you can you can influence so much in how they believe in themselves, what they believe they're capable of. I mean, I had amazing teachers at school. I went to quite a rough state school um, in the UK, but the teachers were so passionate and so, um, so good at their jobs. And they made the difference. You know, no one in my family had ever gone to university and not many people in my school made it to university. And these teachers, you know, recognised the ability and and got those kids to where they needed to be. And I, I thought, what an amazing way to spend your life. I didn't think of teaching as being like, oh, those who, who can do and those who can't teach. I think that's such a horrible you know, thing to say about a teacher because a teacher, really good teacher, career teacher, can just change people's lives, you know. And um, I remember thinking that, um, you know, that I wasn't, I didn't really have much confidence as a, as a teenager to, to 
think that I could be a writer. So I did the next best thing, which is I became a reader and studied literature and then became a teacher. Um, but what I would like to be able to tell my teenage students is if you want to write, write, write now. Don't wait. Don't wait until you think you're financially stable or you've got a baby and you're pregnant, you've got time up your sleeve. That just doesn't happen. You know, if you want to write, do it now because it's a lifelong craft that you need to learn and practice. Wonderful. Coming back to The Branded, your incredible mm -hmm. book, what was the most challenging thing about it? And then what was the most rewarding thing about it, as in the, the writing process I'm talking about? Okay, so this is before readers have given you feedback. Correct. Yeah. Um, okay, so the most challenging thing about it was I think it was working the edits because I firstly I did an agent edit mm -hmm. and then I did an ed uh, uh, a publisher's edit So and several of those. So it was almost like I'd done one round of edits and then the publisher was almost taking me back to go and put things back in. Do you know what I mean? So that was very what frustrating. What kept you going? What 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 kept the faith? You know, I know people who would have just gone, oh, stuff it. <laughs> well, the, yeah, I mean, there are writers who would have said to the agent, no, I'm not changing it. I'm going to just go and look for another agent. Mm. Um, but I trusted my agent. She has an amazing reputation. And I, I agreed. You know, I kind of agree. Mm. I don't think they pull this stuff out of their bums. They know what they're talking about. And she knew best how she could sell that book. Um, she has, you know, decades of experience on me. So I'm not going to question her. And, and yeah, it was work, but I could see that it was going to make it a better book. Mm. Um, and, and then when it got to the publishing stage, basically what keeps you going is the fact that it's going to get published. Yes, <laughs> You're going to get paid for it. <laughs> so, yeah. that And also by that stage, I'd fallen in love with my characters. And, and that probably speaks to the second part of your question, which is what's the most rewarding thing is, you know, just the characters just growing and growing and growing with every edit, you know, not even at the structural stage. Even at, the, even at the line edit stage, I'm tweaking things that bring out tiny little extra thing about that character. And, you know, I, I just feel as though I know my characters inside and out now, you know, and I love them. I can't wait to get back to them. Actually, it's really funny. I woke up the other night and um, I, you know, when you've written a book, you don't necessarily go back and read it in its published form because you've, you've lived in it for so <laughs> long. And... I know I'm working, I'm working on book two, but I had the burning desire to sort of read the the sex scene again in my book one. Because I and I wanted to sort of like, I wonder what it does read like, because somebody had said, oh, they really enjoyed it. And um <laughs> I went back and reread it in the middle of the night and I was like, Yeah, I mean, this is good, I like it. <laughs> So that was a good reaction. <laughs> I I could make it better. I could still make it better, but you know. It was, um, yeah, it was kind of nice to read it as a reader. Maybe it's not going to be a duology. Maybe it's going to go even further <laughs> when you become so attached to your characters and fall in love with them. Sometimes mm. you want them to continue, right? Well, I think that's probably what happens with authors and how they can be convinced into going back to the world again and again because it, and it's not some, some authors, it's the world, isn't it? It's not necessarily yes. the character, but they just want to stay in that world. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've, I've got lots of new, shiny new ideas going on at the moment, so I'm not sure that I really want to revisit. 
Okay, so you're meant to be writing the the next book. You finished book two. You're meant to be writing the the your next new fresh book, um, <laughs> but you're kind of being distracted by doing a few other things. Do you have an idea though? Maybe you haven't started writing, but do you know what it's going to be about? Yeah, roughly, I have some. Well, like I said, shiny new ideas. I haven't written any words on the page. Well, I actually have years ago. A couple of years ago, I wrote some words on the page that I might revisit. Um, but I have my ideas come as kind of now I'm becoming a more experienced writer. They come as kind of pitch ideas. Like so I'll get, you know, two books that I'm absolutely in love with. And I'll think, what what would happen if you, you know, if those two books mated, if they, if, you know, <laughs> if you themes from that and this world and then got this other theme involved. I, I think a lot of writers are doing that now because, you, you you know, the way that you read the books, you can see the influences, but they've used all these influences to create a whole new world and a whole new, um, you know, plot. So it's not like it's not you're not copying. It's just that you're feeding, you know, the world and the and the readership is all feeding off itself you know and kind of creating this new niche I mean I, I one of the things I love at the moment is um these sort of genre mashes so you'll get yeah. you know like a um a medieval a murder mystery with a fan with a fantasy element involved with magic involved or yeah. just finished reading Freya Masks um A Marvelous Light because she was at Supernova with me and oh just this amazing amazing book it's like Edwardian um queer romance so it's like em forster with magic <laughs> with, <laughs> with with people who can do spells let's let's talk oh. a bit you made reference to supernova for people mm. who don't know what is supernova and what do you enjoy about going to events like that as an author um well supernova is a comic kind of uh started off with comics uh, a convention uh it's now become um a full it's a it's a place where fans can go to meet actors from from genre-based series like the walking dead and um game of thrones or or and they can meet the voice actors from some of their favorite um, um animated series like my hero academia and um uh yeah lots of other other series and and also meet fantasy authors as well so they have panels of writers so they have a section where there's they call it literary legends and you all line up with other writers and you you sell your books through well you talk about your books and sign them and then they buy them through the bookshop um but there's a lot of um, self-published authors there as well and then there's people who make badges and um t-shirts and uh there'll be people there who make um samurai swords and armor and it's just like a whole fantasy nerd convention basically <laughs> and what is so beautiful about going to these events is not only do you meet fantastic writers and artists but you also and you make connections which can help your career um you also meet fans and fantasy fans have got to be some of the most gorgeous in the world you know this is not a literary festival there isn't a green room where everybody's kind of like standing off and going you know how much marketing dollars did they get oh they got a hardback how can they go to hardback you know <laughs> and that kind of like sort of literary peevishness that you sometimes get this is like fantasy fans who just come running up and going oh my god I loved your book you know and tell me about your new book you know it's <laughs> kind of no holds barred uh enthusiasm basically 
Oh, how rewarding. It's That's lovely. Um, now, I could actually talk to you all day, Joe, but we've coming to the end of uh, our episode. So I always end with what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would love to be in a position where you are one day? Okay, top three tips. Okay, first tip is if you want to write it, you're going to have to carve out the time, and that means sacrificing things. So that sometimes means not going for lunch on a Saturday with your girlfriends or your your friends. Uh, it might mean getting up at 5 in the morning or it might be, mean staying up till 12 at night. You've got to carve some hours out, and you got to do it regularly. The more often you're in the book, the more the book will live for you. Um, I think if you have big chunks of time away from the book, it can really take you a long time to get back into it. Um, second thing is do courses and get feedback because um, you can be writing and writing and writing. Um, um, but unless you, um, you know, get feedback, you're not going to know how people are going to receive your work. Um, and then just, you know, perseverance, you know, just, People get rejection after rejection after rejection. Don't let it get you down. If you want to write, write. But my other advice is if you want to write a novel, write a novel. Don't mess around with short stories. I wrote short stories because I love short stories. Um, so write the thing you want to write and study that because there's so many different areas, screen, script, you know, screenplays, um, poetry, short stories, whatever, features, you know. Um, focus on the area that you love, you think you you really want to write um, and because it's a craft that you need to practice and then read read other people's. But but don't just read within your genre. I mean, I'd, I'd read widely outside of genre because it can influence you in your own genre as well by seeing what other people are doing outside of your, your chosen genre. So mm, they're my bits of advice for what they're worth. Brilliant. <laughs> Congratulations on The Branded and thank you so much for your time today, Joe. Thanks, Val. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Joe. Now, before I sign off, I, um, I wanted to share something with you. I found this one on Twitter from an English author, Adam Sharp, who loves to make lists, as in he even wrote a whole book just of lists called The Correct Order of Biscuits. Now, I haven't read it, but his Twitter is a lot of fun. Now, you probably know the saying in English, I wasn't born yesterday, which means, of course, you know, I'm not naive or I'm not stupid, but in other languages, they have a similar saying, but it's phrased slightly differently. So there's different nuances here and there. And here are his top five. Coming in at number five, the French say, I wasn't born with the last rain. Number four, in Slovene, it's I didn't come swimming out of a soup. <laughs> Number three, in Afrikaans, it's I wasn't hatched under a turkey. In Finnish, number two, I'm not the offspring of yesterday's grouse. And coming in at number one, in Yoruba, which, if you didn't know, is a West African ethnic group, mainly in Nigeria and some surrounding parts, number one is, do you see breast milk on my lips? There you go. 
That's something that you can share with your friends, and that's courtesy of English author Adam Sharp. All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode, and as I mentioned, the last episode before Christmas. But never fear. There's always going to be an episode coming out every week, even over the Christmas break. So make sure you download or subscribe or follow or whatever it is so that you don't miss an episode and uh, we can keep chatting over the holidays. I'm Valerie Koo. You can connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And my other life as a visual artist is over at ValerieKoo.com. I'd love to see you in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful Christmas break. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.